Have you ever done something for a really long time and then realized that you've been doing it wrong that whole time? Uh, this happens all the time, and one place this happens a lot is the gym. Uh, now, you can broaden this to any athletic en endeavor, right? You can have a really funky basketball shot or a weird golf swing uh, and just be completely oblivious to it. Now, at the gym, people go to the gym all the time. You'll see people on machines who have no idea how to use these machines. Kind of the standard rule should be if you approach a machine, you like mount it and don't know how it works, you should make sure no one's looking and then you get off. <laughs> uh, now I saw, you can enjoy this even from the comfort of your own home via America's Funniest Home Videos or the internet uh, without ever having to step foot in the gym. Uh, I saw one time there was a guy using the cable crossover machine. Uh, now if you don't know what this is, think of, uh, it's like the Samson machine. Okay, so you got two sort of pillars, and there are handles that you can move up and down. And so you, you can put them up here, you can grab them, and then you can pull forward like this, right? And it, it works out like this whole region and your pectorals, and, or you can pull back. It's a very versatile machine. Um, this guy, I don't know if he didn't know that's how it worked, but uh, he loaded the entire weight on each side took a few steps behind, and then took a running jump and grabbed both of them and just like lifted up his legs and fell to the ground and is just jumping up as the weights pull him back up. Like some kind of adult uh, bouncer. You see those baby bouncers? <laughs> now, unless he knows something that I don't know about the cable crossover machine, uh, he's not using it as it was intended to be used. Now, before I sound too snobbish or uh, self-righteous, uh, there's something to be said about actually getting into the gym, right? He probably burned some calories doing that. Um, however, the, the kind of people who use these machines in the wrong way prove that it doesn't matter that you just use the machine. You have to use it rightly or correctly. That's similar to responding to Jesus. It doesn't matter that you just respond to him. You have to respond to him correctly or rightly. That's what we read of in Mark chapter 3 as we approach scripture this morning, continuing in our study of Mark. Uh, you'll find Mark chapter 3 on page 838 in the Pew Bible. Or, um, and we will begin reading in uh, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. Standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. The main point of this passage, and I pray the main point of this sermon, is that your response to Jesus matters. But it might not be what you think it is. Your response to Jesus matters, but your response to him might not be what you think it is. Rejecting Jesus may be obvious or it might be subtle. Either way, Jesus calls us to something more, something deeper. So like many of the previous passages in Mark, Jesus faces rejection and opposition. And as the narrative progresses in the Gospel of Mark, we see that this rejection and opposition, it intensifies. You know, last week or two weeks ago, the Pharisees are planning to kill Jesus. Now, whenever Jesus receives opposition, he always responds to it. He either clarifies what he's saying, he either explains who he really is, or he corrects what has been said. So we're going to organize these verses, verses 20 to 35, by Jesus' reactions to those who respond to him. So you'll notice there, there are two main reactions of Jesus. There's a don't and a do. The don't is, don't reject him. Jesus sees the opposition and says, don't reject. Simple enough. He sees other opposition. In the latter portion of the passage, he says, do the will of God. A don't and a do. So let's dive in. If you're new to Old Oak Bible Church, or if you've been to, uh, with us a few times, this is kind of what we do every week. Uh, Usually I stand up here, I open the Bible, usually we'll go through a different book, a paragraph or a thought at a time, and I will try to explain what it says based on the author's intent and based on how it points to Jesus, and then I will try to apply the passage to our lives based on what the the text wants uh, from us, what God wants from us in this passage. So we dive into this passage, we notice the don't, don't reject And you look at verses 21 to 28 as a whole. That's the big takeaway Jesus wants us to have. Don't reject him. Simple enough. But to give sort of a layer of the land, kind of the different layers of this, verses 21 to 22, we see what rejection looks like. Okay, verses 21 to 22, what rejection looks like. And then we get Jesus' response In verses 23 to 28, why rejecting him is a bad idea. So what rejection looks like, why rejecting him is a bad idea. So can you spot the first rejection Jesus receives? It comes in verse 21. 
says he is out of his mind. How do we get to that point? So per usual, Mark opens up uh, this new account by giving some passing details about what's going on. Right? So he says Jesus is back home. Uh, usually this is Capernaum. Uh, in, in the past, it says his house is Peter's house. And so he's back home, and we also see another familiar scene. This crowd shows up again. It's like every week Jesus is surrounded by this crowd. And the crowd in Mark makes TMZ look like a friendly organization that respects your privacy. Right? This crowd, they are so far into Jesus' business that he can't even sit down and eat a meal. So this is a scene we arrive at in verse 20, and then a new group shows up in verse 21. Those who say that Jesus is out of his mind, they are his family members. Literally, the text says, those of him. And we know that this is his family because Mark often sandwiches his stories together. You may have noticed that as we read this. He kind of ends the first part of the story in verse 21, and then he's going to pick it back up in verse 31. So these are like the buns of the sandwich, right? So in the, in the second bun, it's more clear that he's talking about his family. And so here, though, uh, in verse 21, he says his family heard it. When his family heard it, it's not clear what they heard. Maybe it was something about Jesus, what Jesus was doing. Maybe they were concerned that he wasn't eating, that he wasn't meeting his physical needs. Like any good mother, she wants to make sure her son is fed. But even here, I think there's something more. And other scripture gives us further clues into this. Verse 21 says, they came to seize him. They came to seize him. They came, they came to, to bind him, to deprive him of his freedom. You may know what this is like if, if you have kids and you know, you're in Target or something and your kid just has a meltdown. Uh, you want to bind your child, to seize him, to deprive him or her of their freedom. So here, Jesus' family has concluded that he has lost his mind, so they want to seize him, to stop him in his tracks. What happened to their brother and their son, who was an apprentice carpenter, who grew, as Luke 2 says, in the wisdom and stature of man? Here he is stirring up controversy. Here he is rattling the important officials of his day. Here he is making claims of equality with God. So they sent out to seize him. He's lost his mind. So what rejection of Jesus looks like here is that those who are supposedly the closest to him are presented as not believing in him. That's what John 7, 5 says. It says that even his brothers didn't believe in him. So like last week, we notice in verse 19 of chapter 3, an embarrassing detail for Jesus on the surface. Right? It, we, the list of 12 disciples and the last one, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, if I was writing a story or a biography of Jesus with the goal of trying to convince someone that he is the Son of God, I wouldn't include a detail like the guy who spent three years with him every day ends up betraying him. I wouldn't include the detail like here, that his own family says that he's out of his mind. 
I wouldn't include those details. But it speaks of that the authors want to authentically portray Jesus' life. And it speaks that the authors knew that Jesus knew what he was doing. That Jesus knew that a part of his plan, though tragic, was people rejecting him. So we look at the rejection of Jesus in this form. And his own family saying he's out of his mind. And we may be tempted to think that this seems really unreasonable. Right? Why would anyone ever do that, let alone his own family? So you think about that for a second. If Jesus is just a man, if you think Jesus is just a man, and you take his claims at safe, uh, face value, and you should take his claims at face value, the, claim, the claims he makes in the Gospels at face value, because these writers present him authentically. They don't want to hide any blemishes. If you think Jesus is just a man and you take his claims at face value, then you should conclude that he's out of his mind. Right? If Jesus is just a man and he makes these kind of claims, either Jesus was delusional, he was just wrongly convinced that he was the Son of God, or Jesus was a liar, he was deceptive. And he tried to pull a fast one on everyone that he, that, who heard him. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then he is Lord. And that's the Jesus that confronts us in this passage. That if he is just a man, he is out of his mind. But he's more than just a man. He is the God-man, the Son of God, in the flesh. So Mark leaves this half of the bun on the table, and he's going to complete it later. And we find what else rejection of Jesus looks like in verse 22. This time it's another group who arrives on the scene. They're the scribes of Jerusalem. No longer is Jesus dealing with local officers here. He's dealing at the federal level. Like Jerusalem was the seat of the temple. Very important place. And these scribes represented official opposition to Jesus. So previously we see Pharisees. They come and respond to Jesus. They see Jesus doing something controversial. So they come to Jesus and they question Jesus what he's doing. Right? How can you break the Sabbath? How can you say that you forgive sins? Here it's, it's something different. It's even harsher. The scribes uh, of Jerusalem, they come to Jesus. They don't even ask him a question. They just make an immediate judgment and conclusion. They see what Jesus is doing. They said, Jesus, you're possessed by Satan himself. So, and do you notice what's peculiar about this judgment, about their rejection of Jesus? It's peculiar because they, they just straight up admit that he is actually casting out demons. It's something that they can't not acknowledge. It's a clear reality. It's happening. They, and they have to explain it somehow. So it, it reminds me of, of presidents, right? the United States presidents. And any new administration... If you can't deny that the economy is bad, it's always the previous president's fault. But if you, if you can't deny that the economy is good, it's always uh, because of the current president. Right? So here, it's, it's a reality that they can't deny, and they have to explain away somehow to serve themselves. So they're in a bind. 
They see all that Jesus is doing. They see how many demons he's casting out. But they've already concluded that Jesus isn't who he says he is. So how are they going to explain what's going on? Well, they say that Jesus himself is possessed by Satan. By Beelzebul. He's the Lord of dwelling. Here, it's synonymous with Satan himself. The prince and ruler of demons. So they explain it by saying, Jesus is possessed by Satan. So now he has the power to cast out demons. That should sound sort of shaky in your mind. Because the reasoning is, is faulty. Right? Jesus is destroying Satan because he's empowered by Satan. Right? Those two things don't line up. Before Jesus kind of tears that apart, this is just a side note here. A lot of people say that if they, just, if they just saw Jesus, if they just saw Jesus, they would believe. If they just, if they were just proved that they would see, then, then they would really believe. What about these scribes here? These scribes were trained, they were professionally trained to recognize who the Messiah was. And not only did they not recognize him, they saw him and said that he was possessed by Satan. Do we have the audacity to think that we would do any better if we saw Jesus? No, friends, but we have the scriptures, the complete and authoritative record of who Jesus is. And Jesus tears apart their rejection. So we've seen, kind uh, of remember the lay of the land earlier. Two examples of what rejection looks like to Jesus, verses 20 to 22. Now we get Jesus' response, verses 23 to 27. Jesus explains that rejecting him is a bad idea because it's illogical. It, especially in this sense, it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. So in ver, observe in verse 23. He calls the scribes to himself. You see the wisdom and honesty of addressing your opponents face to face. Jesus calls them to him and tells them that rejecting him, especially in how they were doing it, is illogical. And it's the first time uh, that Mark says that Jesus responded by speaking in parables. And it's kind of an extended metaphor linking two different ideas. And he speaks in parables and he wants to illustrate the rhetorical question he asks. How can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? Guys, what, what you're saying, guys, what you're saying, listen to yourselves. This is ridiculous what you're saying. The king of a kingdom is divided against itself, is at war within itself. If it stays like that for a long enough time, it's gonna end. They knew that from the nation of Israel itself. They, it divided, and eventually they were taken out into exile. We know that here in our own nation. If, imagine if the Civil War kept on going. Who knows what our future would have been. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Here Jesus would have a, a royal house in mind. So Herod the Great ruled the region of Israel. And when he died, he passed off the different regions to his sons. You keep on clashing with those divisions, it's not going to stand. We know that in our own day. 
If your own house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Right? Kids have a funny way of, of sniffing out uh, what dad will say yes to and what mom will say no to. Right? You've got to get on the same page. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Just common wisdom. So what's the point? The point is, if Jesus is Satan, or if Jesus is possessed by Satan, then Satan is destroying himself. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he says in verse 26. Then Satan is coming to an end. That's, it, it, that conclusion doesn't make any sense. It's a wrong conclusion from the scribes. The right conclusion is in verse 27. Now, it's obvious to the scribes that Jesus is casting out demons, but it's not that Satan is destroying himself. Someone else is destroying him. Jesus is greater than Satan. Jesus is the strong man who has come to destroy the works of the devil. A victory guaranteed at the cross to be finished at the last day, like we read in 1 Corinthians 15, where sin and death and Satan will be no more. So the scribe's rejection of Jesus, at, at the first level, it doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus' response to them, it shows us a couple things. I think it shows us that, that Jesus and the Bible and Christianity in general are not anti-logic. They're not anti-logic. So in this instance, in like that verse we read in Isaiah 1.18, God invites us to do what? To reason together. To reason together. I think this undermines the stereotype that if you are a Christian or you want to become a Christian, then you have to check your brain at the door. That's not the case. It also undermines the fear of reason and logic and science and philosophy that, that many Christians have. Many are wary of these things because they think that it'll, it'll destroy their faith. Well, friends, I'm not saying that there will never be any doubts. But what I am saying is that God, the Bible, and Jesus himself has endured a lot of opposition from people who are way smarter than any of us ever will be. Jesus' response to the scribes here that, that their rejection of him doesn't make any sense, that it's illogical. It shows us that if Jesus uses a tool like logic, then we should follow in his pattern. So there are plenty of statements today that people just inherit that sound really good, that sound really smart and pithy, but when you dig a little deeper, you find out that they're hollow. When I think of statements of, uh, like, a, there is no absolute truth. That sounds really good. That sounds smart. That sounds like the in thing to say. There's another statement. Um, you can believe in Jesus. Just don't tell me what to believe or what to think. Dig a little deeper. Those statements are illogical. They don't make any sense. They fail to meet the standard that they uphold. There is no absolute truth. Is that an absolute truth? You can believe in Jesus, just don't tell me what to believe or, or how to think. Well, aren't you telling me what to believe and how to think by telling me that? Friends, logic is not our enemy. Logic is a, a tool that Jesus uses here. 
think Jesus' rebuttal to the scribes here that their response doesn't make any sense. We can kind of turn the tables back on ourselves and notice that often our responses to Christ are also illogical. They're often that way. It's illogical to say that all religions are equally true. It's just illogical. Not all religions say the same thing about Jesus. In fact, only biblical Christianity says that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That, that's it. If, if you are going to say all religions are equally true, then you have to water them down to what they are not. It's illogical to say that. It's illogical for someone to say that they love Jesus but live however they want. That's illogical. Jesus said himself that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we test the logic of how we respond to Jesus. It's illogical to say that you love Jesus but do not love his church. That's illogical. We think about it. The church is the people for whom Jesus died. Jesus loves them enough to die for them. And and you say Jesus is your Lord and you don't love the church, imperfect as she is? Friends, that's illogical. Those things don't follow. So the point is, if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is your Lord, then it is reasonable, then it is logical that love and obedience will follow. So that's the question we ask ourselves. Do our responses to Jesus logically follow what we say we believe about him? If you're like me, the answer is often no. They often don't follow. That's why we continue to repent and believe. That's why we continue to confess our sins to the Lord, knowing that we have a sure pardon of grace, asking God for his grace to live for him all the more, to be separated from sin. So we review the lay of the land so far. We see the kinds of rejection that Jesus receives, right? Verses 20 to 22, rejection from his family, rejection from the scribes. And then Jesus comes in, he says, why rejecting him is a bad idea? First he says, rejecting him is a bad idea because it just, in this case especially, it just doesn't make sense. But Jesus pushes it a little further. Beginning in verse 28, he says, rejecting him is a bad idea because it's blasphemous. It's blasphemous. Verse 28, he says, truly I say to you. Whenever Jesus starts off this way, he's about to say something important. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now hold on. Maybe you heard this passage read earlier and you just kind of flew past verse 28 because you noticed verse 29. You said, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, not forgiven, eternal sin. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, well, don't let the questions of verse 29 cause you to skip over verse 28. All sins will be forgiven. Who is it that forgives sins? It doesn't say here. It's, it's the passive voice. You know, it's, it's God who forgives sins. And on what basis does God forgive our sin? But Jesus himself and the, and the Bible are clear. It's on the basis of a substitute. And that substitute, there is only one, friends. 
the perfect, sinless Son of God who lived the life we didn't live and who died the death we deserve and who rose again, vindicating that he did those things. So before you get hung up on verse 29, revel in verse 28 that all sins will be forgiven. So this passage as a whole, it, 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 it focuses mainly on uh, our response to Jesus. But don't miss it. It still tells us who Jesus is. Right? Earlier we, we see that Jesus is, is the strong man who liberates us from the captives of the evil one. But he, the one who delivers us is also the one who forgives our sins. So all sins will be forgiven Perhaps the better sense is that all sins can be forgiven, except for one. Except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, at the basic level, blasphemy is, is cursing or slandering God. And on the surface, there, there kind of appears to be a shroud of mystery over what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. Not a familiar category in Scripture, right? It doesn't come up all the time. But whatever it is, Jesus says it's serious. And you look at verse 29, it, Jesus says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin. He says that it prevents anyone from ever having forgiveness. And Mark, if we keep reading, Mark gives a hint as to how the scribes were blaspheming the Spirit in verse 30. You see that word for? He said they were blaspheming the Spirit for or, or because they said that Jesus had an unclean spirit. Or Jesus was possessed by a demon. So it, it's Olympic season, right? And the, the Winter Olympics, they're cool, but they kind of don't have quite as much luster as the Summer Olympics. That's just my opinion. Uh, and Olympic season, a lot of the, the fun things to watch for me are the races, any kind of race, any sport especially sprinting. I want to see all-out effort, just a short burst, see who has uh, the, the most speed and guts to win. So you think of track for a second. Maybe the 4x4 or 400 relay. You can win by a mile. I don't know how many meters that is, but you can win by a mile. You can run the best race of your life. If you take one step outside your lane, it's over. You're done. You're disqualified. It prevents you from winning the race, even if you won by a mile. What is the sin that prevents forgiveness? What is the sin that prevents forgiveness? And how does that relate to the Holy Spirit? So we can read in other places of Scripture of, of what the Holy Spirit does, of what his ministry is. Look at places like 1 John chapter 4. tells us that the Spirit's primary ministry is to glorify Jesus Christ as Lord. So here, the scribes are rejecting the Spirit's work of pointing to Jesus as Lord. And instead of making that conclusion, that Jesus is Lord, they concluded that Jesus is Satan. Like the complete opposite of that conclusion. What else does the Holy Spirit do that would relate to us uh, 
preventing from being forgiven? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives faith. He's the one who brings about the new birth. He's the one who opens our eyes and quickens our heart to receive Christ, to have faith in Christ. So by rejecting the Spirit, by blaspheming the Spirit, they make faith in Jesus impossible. And friends, without faith in Jesus, without Jesus in your place, you remain in your sins for eternity. Without a substitute, you remain being in your sin on your own. You remain separated from God under the just punishment of your sin for eternity. And we don't, we don't preach that boastfully. We preach that knowing that each one of us deserves that. And we preach that because it's, it's what it says. It's what Jesus says. That without him, with, without forgiveness, you remain in your sins. You remain in that for eternity. And so it would be dishonest. It would be unloving. It would be cowardly for us to just pass over that little word, eternal. So how do you know if you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? How do you know that? Well, I would say if you're worried that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, then you haven't yet. Or at least, or at least you don't have to stay that way. So the analogy of the race, it, it kind of breaks down, right? So in a race, you, you step out one time, you're done. But all of us, according to the Bible, have stepped out of our lane. And we continue to run outside of our lane, the lane that God has prepared for us. But if you're concerned about that, if you actually know that you have, then the door's open for you to step back in. To step in the place where you were meant to be. And friend, that, that means coming to Jesus and accepting him as your savior from your sin so that you may have forgiveness, that, me, that he may be your substitute. So those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit are those who have a settled rejection of Jesus. They refuse faith and thus they prevent themselves from being forgiven. If that's the state you're in this morning, don't stay there. If you know others in that state, realize the stakes are high. Realize eternity. But also realize that God can change any heart. Do not give up. You spend so much time on what Jesus says not to do. What about what Jesus says to do? I've had a lot of baseball coaches, um, and I've had coaches who only yell at you and tell you what you're doing wrong. Not that helpful, kind of discouraging all the time. I've also had coaches who will, who will yell at you, who will tell you what you're doing wrong, and they'll tell you what to do instead. But their instructions are really vague and kind of embarrassingly obvious. So I can't tell you how many times I'm pitching Right, and I get into sort of a jam. There are multiple runners on base. Batters up. I start. I start them off with like two consecutive balls. It's it's two and zero. Oh. Then I hear this loud voice from the dugout. It's an insight that it makes it makes one wonder. 
How could this coach not be a coach in the major leagues? It's 2-0. and And I hear this voice yelling out to me, throw strikes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> really? I, 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 here I am. I, I'm thinking that the name of the game is to get as many runners on base as I can, just not even, not even aim for the plate. Throw strikes. Man, I guess the concept, this is a paradigm shifting. The concept of the game has just changed. This is just, it's embarrassingly obvious advice. And not, it's not just obvious. It's vague enough that it doesn't make sense all that often. Right? Like, would you have me just throw the ball straight down the middle every time? That would be throwing strikes every time. So I promise you at the beginning, don't and a do. So in the first section, Jesus endures rejection. He responds to it by saying, don't reject him because it's illogical. And don't reject him because it's blasphemous. It prevents you from being forgiven. So starting in verse 31, he's rejected in a different way. And at first blush, that Jesus' do command, it sounds like throw strikes. He says, do the will of God. Well, yeah, Jesus, do the will of God. Okay. It seems vague. It seems embarrassingly obvious. Well, let's see if that's really the case. So verse 31, Mark completes his sandwich that he began in verse 20. And we see there's a bit of a role reversal in these verses. So those who would expect to be outside are inside. Like the crowd who's expected to be outside, they're inside with Jesus. And those who are expected to be inside, his family, are outside. Right? So those inside the crowd, uh, they tell Jesus that your family's looking for you. Uh, just a side note, Joseph, at this point, it, it, he's probably not around. He probably passed away, most scholars assume, during Jesus' childhood. The crowd says, Jesus, your, your family's on the outside. And Jesus gives kind of a surprising reply. It kind of seems cold on the surface. It seems like he's denying his family. Well, it's not the case. He's saying that there's something more important than blood relation. He's saying that the ties of his spiritual family are not found in blood. They're found in something else. Who is Jesus' family? Jesus says they are those who do the will of God. Now, God's will is kind of a term that Christians just throw around all the time. Lord, if it's your will, just be, let it be done. We kind of get lost in translation of, of what God's will actually is. There are two senses or meanings of, of the will of God. The first is what's called God's will of decree. It means this is what God plans. This is what God wills. And that will happen. God's will of decree. This is what we find in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done. God wills everything that happens to come to pass. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without him knowing it. And yet, somehow, mysteriously, this is compatible with genuine human choice. That's God's will of decree. Then there's God's will of command. This is what he wants us to do. It's what he commands us to do. And it's what we find here. 
When Jesus tells us to do the will of God, he's saying, do what God commands you to do and do what God desires you to do. So I don't know if you know this, but this isn't like God's will of decree. We can fail to do what God wants us to do. Now, there are aspects of God's will of decree that aren't always clear. God's will of command is always clear. In other words, we always know what God commands us to do. It's written down. Even in the Gospel of Mark, what is Jesus' consistent message? Chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe the Gospel. That's God's will of command. Other places, God's will for us is to give thanks to him in all circumstances. God's will for us is our sanctification. To remove ourselves from sin, to devote ourselves to him. It's God's will for us that we would glorify him in all things. This is God's will. We do God's will. Do you remember that we observed that we test the logic of our responses to Jesus? Here's Jesus is talking along those same lines. He's saying that there can be a gap between what you profess to be, what you say you are, and how you actually live. It means in some, in some cases, appearances don't tell the whole story. The Bible says that we are justified by faith alone. But it doesn't say that faith is alone. That faith never comes alone. This is what the Bible calls fruit. Now, some will produce more fruit than others, but any tree that's been given new life will give evidence of that new life by producing fruit. So the main point of this sermon, and I believe this text, is that your response to Jesus matters, but that response might not be what you think it is. So the responses to Jesus in this text, whether they're from the scribes, whether they're from his family, show us that we need to take a look at how we ourselves are responding to Jesus. So this is the Lord's day. Don't end this day without examining that. Do your desires, what you really want, line up with your profession that Jesus is your Lord. Do your words to others. Line up with your profession that Jesus is Lord. Do your habits and routines, the ins and outs, every day. Line up with your profession that Jesus is Lord. Maybe, friends, take time at lunch to discuss areas of your life where God has been faithful and has helped you to live consistently like this, to do his will and to discuss areas where you need help, where you can follow God more closely. And do this before you go to bed, when you pray this evening. So at this moment in Jesus' life, we see his family. And what his family appeared to be on the outside is as close to him, as, as insiders did not line up with their actual responses to him. But praise God, it didn't stay that way. We see Mary would stay with her son through his death. And Mary would be there at the beginning 
of her son's church. James, uh, not the brother of John, but James, the Lord's brother, and Jude, among, among the Lord's brothers who did not believe in him, they both wrote epistles that, that are in the New Testament. And in each of their epistles, they, they open up in their first verse, they identify themselves, kind of a tradition of how you write letters in that time. And they don't identify themselves as brothers of Jesus. You know what they say, both of them? The very first verse, they call themselves servants of the Lord Jesus. So as we close, I'm I'm reminded of two realities. The Bible says to test yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. The Bible also says that perfect love casts out fear. Somehow we got to hold both of those things. Genuine faith in Jesus produces fruit. Like we're told, you got to do the will of God. That's, that's what my family does. And then we ask, well, Jesus, how much is enough? How much fruit is enough evidence? If we keep asking ourselves that, we will always be anxious. Now we do say we, we test ourselves. But the Christian life is not about perfection. It's about direction. What is the direction you're consistently going? Each of us are going to get knocked down by sin. But I've said this before. No Christian ever gets knocked out by sin. They keep on getting up. And they keep on following. So by all means, yes, test yourself. See if your responses to Jesus are lining up with what you say you believe about him. Friends, you're going to see that you fall short. So let that spur you on to hold on to Jesus all the more tightly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. That God, we we are often just illogical. We say things that we don't do. We say we believe things about you, but live lives that are so different to what that is. God, please, please help us. Please give us grace to follow you more closely. God, please give us compassion for those who are, who are rejecting you. Holy Spirit, would you give eyes to see, would you give ears to hear, and hearts to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord that they may have the substitute, that they may have forgiveness of sin. God, will we see that reality and hold on to it more and more so that we may do your will, so that we may not glorify us in our lives, but glorify you in our lives. So help us examine ourselves and bring us back up by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.